Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Don't worry, we haven't defected to become an independent podcast. In fact, this week's edition should open with a fanfare of some description because we're doing a special edition focused exclusively on discretionary fund managers. This week's edition of Financial Advisor included a five-page special report on how to outsource your investment management. And here to help me discuss several DFM-related issues are Minesh Patel, Managing Director of EA Financial Solutions. Hello, Minesh. Hello, Damien. And Dave Baxter, the Deputy Editor of Money Management, who also works on Asset Allocator, which is FT Specialist's daily email alert focused on the DFM market. Now, the first issue that we're going to discuss is decumulation. We've seen um, a number of DFMs move into this market on the back of pension freedoms with the claim that you can't use the same investment strategies in in accumulation as you can in, in decumulation. Um, Minesh, let's start with you. How do you is is this a service that you feel that you need as an advisor? Uh, not necessarily. I don't prescribe to that view because I think what these strategies are essentially trying to do is uh, it's asset asset uh, liability matching, which the type of investment philosophy that's been available in the, in the uh, institutional space for some years. So they're essentially trying to provide income. In various at uh, various time frames, I think more appropriately is to work on a total return basis rather than singly trying to focus on income when it comes to the decumulation the decumulation space. It feels a little bit gimmicky for me. Mm-hmm. And Dave, do these sort of decumulation strategies offer anything particularly wildly new? DFMs would argue. Um that there are various pitfalls that you have to avoid. Um, So some of the classic risks like um, sequencing risk Mm -hmm. um, and uh, various other problems. I suppose it makes sense for them to kind of offer a set income portfolio, um, particularly now that um, because of the prod rules um, Mm -hmm. issues by the FCA last year following MIFID 2, you now have to uh, kind of break up your your client groups according Mm -hmm. to their needs. Um, so maybe it will be more convenient if you are an advisor who uses a DFM yeah. um, in that you can put your income clients into the specific income buckets. Sure. Uh, Minesh, how do you uh, address sequencing risk? Well, I think one of the easiest ways to address sequencing risk is to hold more in cash at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And clearly the problem with sequencing risk is that you withdraw too much capital at the beginning when, if, if, if in the event the markets are falling. So why not reserve more cash to cope for those uh, shorter-term income needs? Um, the other thing I would like to add is that if we are looking at income strategies for decumulation, we essentially, I, my preference would be to look at bespoke portfolios as opposed to uh, income-driven model portfolios, which is what the debate appears to be around, because at least the client needs can be addressed much more individually rather than a, a model portfolio which is income-driven. Manish, I was going to ask, how does that work for um, sort of clients with lower levels of assets as well? Or This is, this, mm. this is the issue at hand, that most advisors are working on larger portfolios and decumulation in the smaller income space. I would also then think about is it is it suitable? Is it suitable in the first space? And what do we de- what do we define as smaller income portfolios? It, it, it's all about sort of having taking a more individual approach to yeah to uh, 
towards that decumulation? I, I mean, I, I think that what we're trying to do is we're, we're confusing a few matters. The client needs a certain level of income and an investment strategy is being developed to to deliver that level of income, whether it be 3.5%, 4%, etc., etc., to overcome the idea, the, mm. overcome the concept of sequencing risk. But I, I would argue that perhaps we're looking at what about what, where we're using cash flow modeling. Cash flow modeling should be looking at splitting up income and splitting up the income needs in an appropriate fashion. Does this really fulfill the void of cash flow modeling? Because the, the principle here is really about cash flow modeling, mm-hmm. is that you want sustainability of income. And that's where the cash flow should come in first. The second topic we're going to be discussing is some recent research that Asset Allocator has covered, which showed uh, DFMs are increasingly competing with advisors' model portfolios. Now, Dave, you've got some research about the weightings of, of DFM models and advisors' models. What does this show? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So um, Asset Allocator brings together a lot of the, its own research on uh, the DFM market and what they're doing in terms of weightings to different asset classes and so on. Um, but we were also looking at uh, some regular research by Natixis, mm. which um, looks into advisor model portfolios. And their latest batch of research found, uh, essentially, when matched with our research, that advisor models tend to have many of the same weightings as DFM models. Mm-hmm. So, for example, they have roughly half of assets um, allocated to equities um, and around a fifth in fixed income. Uh, but one of the few differences is actually in bonds, just in the sense that advisors hold slightly less than DFMs. And I guess there are a variety of potential reasons for this. Um, one may just be that advisors are more concerned about the um, the long-running bond risks that we have, whether it's um, monetary policy changing or bonds just being too pricey after a long, long bull run. But also another issue is uh, advisors have tried to diversify away from both equities and bonds um, via multi-asset funds. Mm-hmm. But one thing, according to Natixis, one issue is uh, these multi-asset funds are often fairly um, correlated to equities, but not so much to bonds. So you're essentially doubling up on your equity exposure. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas when you want the effects of bonds, so um, Q4 last year, bonds started coming to their own. They started to uh, diversify um, for portfolios at a time when stock markets were falling. I suppose advisors, to an, to an extent, have missed out on that, uh, that effect. Minesh, this idea that sort of DFMs and sort of advisor models are broadly matching each other in terms of weightings, does that, what does that suggest to you? Does it suggest that DFMs are um, not really adding much? No, what it suggests is that the, the portfolio construction is fairly similar. So most uh, uh, advisor models and DFM models are using things like uh, distribution technology, Finometrica, those those asset allocation tools. And for various risk categories, they will follow very similar risk asset asset allocation. Now, in reference to the the point about bonds, 
I don't think multi-asset funds are a replacement or should be considered a replacement for bonds mm. because the intention of a bond, intention of bonds and fixed income is is, diver- is diversification and risk management. So in times of dislocation, bonds will fall less uh, less quickly and less uh, not as far down as equities. So I, I totally agree that you are doubling up on, you are increasing equity exposure unwittingly by replacing bonds with a multi-asset uh, fund or funds. But it, it's, it's very samey because they're using the same uh, asset allocation tools. How would an advisor address this? Would you have to look for a DFM that does something slightly different? Why, um, I mean, I would say that the, the role of a DFM is not to be completely different or contrarian. It's the, the intention that they're just reliable and deliver what the client needs. Now, for example, if you're setting a profile of the client decides that you decide between a client that you need 3.5% uh, income per, per annum, I just want the DFM to deliver deliver that deliver that 3.5% yield plus uh, and keep trying to keep the capital intact. So it's about the, the objectives of the client. I don't particularly want the DFM to do anything different. But where, where there are, there are some, sometimes at a disadvantage is uh, DFM models can be slightly costlier, although they are looking to they, ha- they are looking to address that issue. Um, I, I think that multi-asset broadly is quite similar across the marketplace, whether it be advisor models, DFM models, or, or, or multi-asset portfolios. Mm. Dave, do you see that issue of cost as being something that's about being addressed? Yeah, I mean, um, obviously we've seen that cost pressure in areas like asset management. Um, we've seen it for advisors and as part of that whole, what the FCA likes to call the value chain, mm-hmm. um, we see that for DFMs. Um, and I suppose there's a whole theory where if you're the advisor, you have the client relationship and you're looking at your whole cost, you want to keep it within a certain limit, say under two percent one and a half percent whatever that figure happens to be uh, sometimes there may be more leeway on um, the outsourced outsourced sorry uh, services you use such mm-hmm. as DFMs yeah um, so DFMs are seeing that cost pressure come through um, particularly when it comes to things like model portfolios which are more commoditized whereas mm-hmm. bespoke you can still to an extent I think say we're offering you something special, offering you something that's, you know, suiting your exact needs, and therefore we can charge a bit more. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you address this issue of cost in practice when you're dealing with an outsourced uh, investment solution? Yeah, I mean, I use model portfolio, DFM model portfolios, and I blend it with with model portfolios which are le- which are certainly less costly. For example, Vanguard, Vanguard's the life strategy concepts are very mm. uh, cost effective. Legal and general off of uh, passive model portfolios, the multi-index uh, concept, the the uh, their, their uh, model portfolios, uh, standard life my folio. So so I try and blend it, to try and because otherwise the cost when you when you when you implement through a platform can be quite expensive. So I try to bring the cost down through a blend. And and indeed I think many of the DFMs. Uh, <laughs> Do compete unwittingly against Vanguard Life Strategy. Life Strategy, Life Strategy has done the job; it has it has delivered. Um, whereas DFMs can't always uh, argue that they have always delivered mm. in uh, th- from year to year on a consistent basis. Well, I'd say that Vanguard has been a very 
a predictable and reliable source of asset allocation for me and my clients. Uh, Vanguard Life Strategy, it's um, taken in a lot of the uh, kind of sales on the, the multi-asset front. Yes, yes, and deservedly so, deservedly so, because it's such a simple concept. And going back to some of the early discussions, one of the issues that we, I mean, that, that the, makes the income strategies or, or decumulation strategies not so appealing is, again, you're addition, uh, introducing more complexity. And, and I think the market, in the marketplace where complexity has been introduced in product design, it hasn't particularly appealed to either advisor or clients simply because of the complexity of, 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 of delivering that uh, explanation to the client and reviewing it every year. Uh, Dave, you, with all this sort of taken into, a, into account, do you think that we've reached peak DFM? Oh, that's a classic question, isn't it? It is, yes. Um, I mean, people have been declaring peak DFM for quite a long time, so you never really know. It's, it's sort of a, a broken record. Um, but... Uh, there have been some indications in the last couple of years that that growth that you've seen um, since RDR, um, you know, even though it's now half a decade away, um, but also as a result of the um, pension freedoms, some mm -hmm. of that money spilling over into funds and um, DFM portfolios, um, there have been signs that that has slowed a bit. Um, so... I guess one interesting question is uh, when we look at things like income portfolios or, for example, you've seen DFMs launching ethical portfolios and um, AIM portfolios, um, which focus on the inheritance pack, uh, tax benefits, uh, whether those are basically the kind of next mm -hmm. source of growth, if there is a source of growth mm -hmm. uh, for wealth firms. Sure. Minesh, what do you think? DFMs, I think, are starting to become very homogenous. I think that there needs to be more differentiation within the DFM space. I personally find that my level of flow to DFMs has increased simply because the, the, the quality of client is increasing for us from year to year. I call the quality in terms of volume of, of, of assets that we're investing for them. And the needs and the complexity of clients is increasing. So our DFM allocation is moving forward rather than the, the, the backwards. Um, I think that because they are so homogenous now, that I think then does need to be differentiation and things like a, uh, ethical portfolios, I believe, are the way forward for considerable growth. Because simply because the millennials and younger people really are far more interested in, in those those types of issues. And the performance has been stellar. I mean, we, in addition to model portfolios, we do satellite investing, meaning just fund individual funds, which incorporate ethical funds. And that's really the only area that we tend to select funds in. Um, AIM portfolios have been around for some time, and, and that's becoming uh, a popular, popular space. I think it's a very valid space, given that you can't easily just put that into a tracker style of investing, i.e. just by the FTSE, FTSE AIM index. It re does require individual company selection, although they are risky and very volatile. But I, I, I on the whole, when I'm using AIM portfolios, either put it with someone like Octopus who do uh, smaller AIM portfolios or put it with a DFM. And, and, and I have to say, where, where I have put it with DFMs, AIM portfolios, they have delivered. 
they've done a good job mm-hmm. in that market. Yeah. I was going to say on the um, differentiation points. Um, earlier, you talked about the fact that you want a sort of reliable outcome. Um, mm. So, is it? It's interesting. Do you think that's a bit of a tension between? Because on the, on the one hand, you just want to do what works as a DFM, but on the other hand, you're seeing this pressure to be different somehow. Um, and at least when it comes to conventional model portfolios, do you think there's a bit of a sort of conflict going on there, or um, do you think that doesn't really matter so much in the straightforward portfolios? Yeah, I, I think the issue that they have is they're all fighting for the same middle ground. They're all fighting. Mm. To, they're all fighting to to offer the same solution in the same middle ground, which is essentially uh, it's crowded and. The differentiation needs to be by client, client and advisor relationship rather than uh, product design because it, they're not particularly unique between one DFM and another, although they would argue that they do things slightly differently, the analysis. And they, and they have, but perhaps where I would look, be able, would like more uh, clarity and more, more information is in what way are they particularly different to, to well, how, how different is Bruin Dolphin to Smith & Williamson? How different is Smith & Williamson to Brooks McDonald? And now mm. how different is Brooks McDonald to Quilt, etc.? That That would really be useful research. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and that's a somewhat more of a time-consuming exercise. Well, we know what uh, Dave's going to be doing when he gets out <laughs> of uh, this podcast. <laughs> they, they all claim to be very different. They all claim to, to, to sort of... Um, be at the heart of advisor needs and advisor mm. relationships, but I, I don't see much out there when I see presentations as w- what makes them particularly different to yeah. their competitors. Mm-hmm. Do you? Um, what do you care about most from a DFM? Because um, de facto, do I think it's every six months or so they do a uh, a review of what advisors think, and um, yeah. I was finding it quite interesting because investment performance, um, I don't think, it, at least in the last couple of years, I don't think it's ever been the top thing. They've yeah. always mentioned things like service or, you know, the, part of the kind of broader broader package. Um, so what matters for you? For me, it's the relationship and service. I, I think that in terms of performance, that's a given. We expect performance for the fees mm. that you're paying to a DFM. So I, I expect an efficient service. I expect individual attention from, from my clients. Um, interesting enough, I've just placed a fairly fairly substantial amounts with 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 DFMs, and one of the great advantages I saw with that it was at the back end of 2018 when markets were dislocated that the their the the fact that they asset allocate gradually meaning they hold some in cash and then invest over a gradual period so you're not fully invested from day yeah. one yeah. offered a massive benefit in in and the the outcomes so far are extremely strong because we we um we weren't trying to time the market in any way but their their tactical asset allocation positions proved extremely helpful and and that's that's where i see it being particularly valuable that the that that you're not forced to make decisions which are right or wrong do i invest now or do i invest tomorrow you you know that 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 discussion is taken away from you and that can be very much judged and and tailored on an individual basis so that's that's how i see um one of the value points the other value point is uh, capital gains tax management uh, in uh, particularly that if if you've got embedded gains as many of my portfolios have now 
then we need to manage that capital gains tax liability because otherwise if it's all crystallized at one point it's going to be extremely painful for the client to pay all the cgt in, mm-hmm. in one in one so the needs that they fulfill are much more than i think i believe about investment performance well i think that's been fascinating uh, thanks Mesh, and thanks dave Pleasure. for taking part Pleasure. and uh, everybody else uh, tune in again soon 